You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You know, too many people are homeless and too many people are dying because they don't have a home. Housing is the backbone for public health. Housing is the backbone for education. Housing is the backbone for broad, like, social and community health. We could start thinking more about housing as a right and that everybody needs housing fundamentally to live. We have climate refugees in our own state. Individual people can do a lot to support housing and inclusive neighborhoods where they live. From the Vox Media Podcast Network, this is a special bonus episode of Future Perfect. I'm your co-host, Dylan Matthews. Future Perfect is all about using big ideas and new technologies to build a better, more sustainable tomorrow. And there are a few areas of life that need as much improvement as our housing. Rents are skyrocketing, COVID-19 is threatening to push millions of renters from their homes, and emissions from our houses and our commutes threaten the planet. Nowhere in the country is confronting the housing crisis quite like California. So I was lucky to get to speak to two leaders in California's effort to build more and more affordable housing. Annie Fryman is an advisor working on housing policy in the office of State Senator Scott Weiner, who represents San Francisco and some neighboring areas. Weiner has introduced and passed some of the most expansive legislation to fix the state's housing crisis, and Annie was a key part of that. Leonora Kamner is the executive director for Affordable Housing Los Angeles, a group which, in its own words, fights for lower rents in a more sustainable and prosperous region, where everyone has more choices of where to live and how to pursue their dreams. She's also a housing commissioner in her home city of Santa Monica. The three of us got together for a discussion of California's housing challenges and what they mean for the rest of the country. Enjoy. So I guess one one place to start would just be um, if you both want to introduce yourself and, and say what you do and sort of what your connection to housing is. So my name is Annie Fryman. I work out of the state capitol in Sacramento for State Senator Scott Weiner, who represents San Francisco, um, primarily in a little bit of the county immediately south. I am his lead housing advisor and legislative aide on housing affordability, on land use, and on transportation issues, um, and the nexus of all three of those with local government and governance. Yeah, I spend most of my time uh, policy wonking about housing and land use, which I'm excited to do more of today. Hi, I'm Leonora Kamner. I'm executive director of Abundant Housing LA. We're a pro-housing outreach and advocacy organization. We're a growing movement of people demanding more homes to address rents, traffic, and climate change. We do advocacy around administrative processes like housing element updates, plus we support individual housing projects and we advocate for policy changes. So, you know, we we try to cover a lot of different things and ultimately, you know, we're trying to do uh, that culture change work to shift the conversation around housing 
in LA County to uh, so that people can understand the benefits of more housing, why it's needed, and that you know housing is actually good for communities. You know, it's where families are going to live. So that's that's the message we're trying to get out there. So we're recording this on September first, and there was was actually a really big news day last night uh, for for housing in California um, in the legislature. Uh, where a, a, a bill uh, was was voted down. Annie, you were on the ground. You were in the thick of it. Um, what happened? What was the bill? What would it have done? And and what happened? Uh, so on the ground is all virtual these days. So we were tuning in <laughs> over a live stream. But yeah, so there was actually a whole package of housing bills in the legislature. The one that got the most attention last night and that was central to most of the kerfuffle was a bill called SB 1120. Um, and it was a bill authored by the leader of the Senate, the Senate pro tem, Tony Atkins from San Diego. And what the bill did was it essentially made it such that any single family lot in the state of California, regardless of <clears throat> restrictions in the local zoning, could be subdivided into a duplex, right? So you could have, if the local government said it's illegal to build anything more dense than a single family home on this lot, um, this state law would come in and say, that's great local government, we're overriding you, you can actually do a duplex. And further, you can actually split that one single family lot into two lots and then do a duplex on both. So depending on the makeup of each property, you could go from the same exact piece of land having one unit of housing up to really four units of housing. As you can imagine, that was uh, very controversial in housing and local government and the debates around the role of state government in local control of land use and a lot of that transition that's sort of many years in the making that we're uh, trudging through right now. And it had a bizarre fate last night. Um, I got word a couple days ago that they had the votes to get it passed, which was not guaranteed a week ago or for the whole summer for that matter. Ultimately, last night, which was the final night of session for the state legislature, so everything had to be out by midnight or it was sort of legally null and void, they passed that bill with enough votes at 11.58 p.m. in the basically with one step left to go and then ran it down the hall to the Senate, and it did not get passed, I believe, until 12.01 or 12.02. And so there was a lot of drama over how exactly this was going to move forward, because usually you think of a bill failing in the sense that it doesn't get enough votes or it doesn't get taken up at all, right? Those are really the two ways procedurally that a bill goes from you know, an idea to a failure. In this case, neither of those things happened, right? The bill got enough votes, and it had the hearings. Um, and there was a lot of speculation around why it was sequenced the way that it was. Uh, but ultimately, even with enough votes and even with all of the hearings happening, the bill did not succeed. And it's 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 dead for the year. Did not get sent to the governor's desk. So, Leonora, um, what would a bill like that have meant in Los Angeles um, to it, it on the surface? You know, we can build two units here rather than one doesn't seem like a massive change, but but this seemed like a really significant bill, significant enough that a lot of people wanted to kill it. So so what would that have meant for the communities you work with? So SB 1120 is about changing the way that we use our land. So to explain the problem that we have in LA County, you know, imagine that you have a large collection of books. You could stack them up 
on a shelf or you could lay them out flat side by side across the floor of your home. You know, if you lay them out flat side by side, you wouldn't even be able to fit all of your books in your home. And so it doesn't really make any sense. But that's exactly what we do for housing in Los Angeles. In the city of LA, over 75% of our residential space is zoned just for exclusionary single family. That means that apartment buildings are banned and that only one family can live on each piece of land. And even where apartment buildings aren't just outright banned, other rules make it very hard for them to be built. It's a wasteful use of land, and then there's none left over for everyone else. It's inefficient. So people have to travel long distances to get anywhere, and then that's what chokes our streets with traffic, and that increases greenhouse gas emissions as well. And then on top of this, the environment has to continually be destroyed because we can't fit people into our urban areas. So, you know, we have these problems, but then we also have like the scarcity of homes in that kind of system. And then that's what drives up costs and that causes homelessness. It causes overcrowding. It causes displacement. It's just a terrible system And there are cultural and racist reasons that American cities chose it. And I think that's really fundamental to understanding why uh, even SB 1120 is so hard to accomplish in California. It's a deep culture of hostility to housing and racism. And I was actually going to add one more thing, too, because I know a lot of people probably by the time we air this will have read about this bill and about how it's being talked about in California. And one of the taglines that I think is important to add some clarity on or shed some light on is that oftentimes people are like, California is about to abolish single family zoning or like California had this bill and they were going to abolish single family zoning, but then they didn't. Um, The abolish single family zoning conversation is... There's so much gray area in between about exactly what that means, right? So when people ask me, you know, depending on what body of law you're referencing, California technically abolished single-family zoning when we adopted our first round of accessory dwelling unit laws, right, many, many years ago. Then four or five years ago, we updated them and made them easier to use. Then last year, we technically made statewide triplexes, in air quotes, legal, through a different body of law that didn't really have to do with zoning. But the practical implication of that is that there's not single family zoning. You can build three units even when a local government says you can build one. And so I I do find it really interesting that there is so much energy around this conversation and the polarization about like who's going to abolish single family zoning, how quickly are we going to do it, blah, blah, blah. But Arguably, we've kind of already done it. And also, we have a long, long way to go because practically speaking, in many places, it's virtually impossible to build anything but a single family home. So let's talk a little bit about the history here. Leonora, you you mentioned that there are sort of racist and and historical reasons for for a lot of these laws. Um, Walk us through that history a little bit. Where did single family zoning come from and, and how is it bound up in that history? Yeah, so I think just the big picture is that there's such a long history of a cultural attachment in America to the idea of single-family homes, and there's just this hostility to apartment buildings and renters. Uh, I think anybody who's ever lived in an apartment building has probably been asked at one time, when are you going to get a real home? But just to kind of go back, I, as a personal story, I 
live in Santa Monica, which is a very progressive neighborhood. And I came across this historical advertisement for Santa Monica that's about from the 20s, where it literally says, Santa Monica has high class building and race restrictions, which preclude from the residential district the undesirable classes. And this was like an advertisement for people to come live in Santa Monica. These were these were advertised as benefits of Santa Monica. So that that was really our history then uh, around the, the 20s and that time, explicit race restrictions in residential area areas, plus the building restrictions as well, like the ban on apartment buildings and renters. So, you know, over time, the Supreme Court addressed the explicit ban, the explicit race restrictions. But, you know, we never really got around to addressing the other side, the building restrictions. You know, we we address the history of redlining in some ways. You know, we address the explicit racism in insurance policies. But then, you know, we didn't really get around to the the other less explicit versions of that, like the the single family exclusionary zoning, and you know the building restrictions that are that are mentioned in advertisements in advertisements like this. So, you know, we still see the results of that today in a place like Santa Monica, which considers itself progressive. You know, the places that still have these surviving building restrictions are much more segregated. And people still defend that. People still defend those exclusionary building restrictions. So I think we need to really take a hard look at this history, you know, acknowledge it, understand it, and then implement anti-racism policies that look at the way that we use our land as well. And so just to, to be very explicit, what's the mechanism by which this is reinforcing segregation? What is It's uh, restricting the amount of housing you can build, and so that's that's raising rents. Is that the basic dynamic here? The way the mechanism that it works is that by only allowing the most expensive kind of housing, the single family home, where only one family can live in a building, that means so many other people in society don't have access to that. And so I think you can't just look at racism in America. You have to also look at class and you have to look at economics. And those are all very closely connected to each other. And I think that, you know, that's been taken advantage of in our history where it's, you know, maybe we get rid of the explicit racism, but we still leave the the classist and the other economic structures in place that make our neighborhoods segregated and exclusionary. And that's the fundamental problem here. And I always, I have an image that I use a lot here in Santa Monica because I've been out riding my bike a lot during this pandemic. And so I pass by these two buildings all the time in my neighborhood. They're just a couple blocks away. They look identical. They're about the same size. They have like the same style of architecture. And one of them is in the multifamily zoned area. So six families are allowed to live in that building. They live in apartments in that building comfortably. And then you go a couple blocks north to the single family area and only one family is allowed to live there. Well, that home there is five times more expensive than, than the same, like it looks exactly the same, those homes in that other building. And then you look at the, at the fact that in the multifamily area, we have a, about an 8% black population, you know, but just going, just crossing over a couple blocks that population drops to 0.8%. So I think that these things are all closely connected and it's it's very easy to see that just crossing the border over these 
uh, differently zoned areas, you can see that segregation happening. Um, and that's, you can kind of understand the mechanism that's at place there. One thing that I also think is important when we're talking about like the interplay between zoning and just the broad umbrella of issues around racism and housing in the United States is it's important to remember that we're only a few generations removed from 1968, Fair Housing Act. Prior to that, there was explicit on the books, broadly known redlining policies all throughout the United States. And so much of, you know, individual households ability to, for example, become homeowners is for so many Americans tied to intergenerational wealth, right? So your parents or your grandparents die, whatever wealth that they had had, you stand to inherit some portion of that. And white Americans, after having many, many, many more decades, um, generations of time to accumulate that intergenerational wealth versus Black and other minority families that did not, we're only a couple generations removed from that. And so in a way that a white person like me would have the ability to pay for a down payment, statistically far more likely because you have your parents helping you out or because you have the security of a family situation that was denied to so many families throughout the United States who were not white like I am. That is a really, really key part of that. And so when we talk about single family home zoning versus multifamily home zoning and also the differences between homeownership and renting, I do think that that is an important contour of this conversation that we can't forget about, which is that if you essentially make a neighborhood single family homes only, you have HOA restrictions on it that restrict people from renting those single family homes, you're virtually saying homeowners only in this area, in this neighborhood, in this community. And what is homeowners only really mean with that historical context of who has had access to homeownership and who has not? at broad scale. So that's just another element that I wanted to make sure that um, we said and discussed explicitly, because it's not just about, you know, zoning keeps out certain um, families or certain types of communities or certain types of neighbors. It's also, you know, how does that zoning impact all these other things around banking, around finance, and around um, intergenerational wealth? I think it's important to recognize that you know, just addressing zoning is not going to completely open up communities and make them inclusive and meet our housing needs. You know, we have to do that. We have to pass things like SB 1120. We have to allow more density, but we also have to increase the funding for affordable housing. You know, uh, Abundant Housing LA did a calculation, which you can see on our website, AbundantHousingLA.org, um, where LA County would need nearly $300 billion over the next eight years just to meet affordable housing needs. So we really need to look at as many funding sources that we can. We need to look at innovative solutions and look at like these structural changes like the zoning that are contributing to the high cost of housing. And, and we need to do this while we're protecting renters as well and also change the culture to be less hostile to apartment buildings and renters. That leads in nicely to... Um a much more time-specific crisis than the the sort of crisis of segregation and, and exclusion that we've been talking about, which is COVID-19. Obviously, right now, there's a massive recession with unemployment, uh, enhanced benefits gone. A lot of people are struggling to make rent. Annie, I know Sacramento has been working a lot on ways to protect renters. A lot of that's still up in the air, but I'm, I'm curious what the general approach is there and, and what uh, what renters need in this moment 
in the near term to, to weather this crisis. Obviously, more housing helps people in, in the medium to long run, but there's a, a crisis in the next week or month that that's really weighing on people too. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the way that I'd like to frame my answer to this question is broadly around um, eviction protection. That's really the central central theme. And the factors that are contributing to that is basically COVID-19, you know, broadly hit depending on where in the country you were sometime in March of 2020, right? Some places earlier, some places later. In California and the Bay Area, for example, we went into lockdown the second or third week of March. So with all of that, you had, for example, um, hospitality workers, service workers, people generally on hourly wages, people generally who have to do their jobs in person, and people who generally do not have broad job security that someone on a salary with healthcare who can do their work from their laptop has. Demographically speaking, those are also folks who are far more likely to be housing insecure, far more likely to be renters. And so we had this compounding crisis of unemployment, of people who were living in overcrowded housing situations, meaning more than one person to a bedroom, often multi-generational families, people who were essentially splitting you know, one house into many, many, many people to make the rent cheaper in places that are most expensive. Then people lost their jobs or got furloughed or got laid off or their businesses got closed. And the very anemic social safety net and the challenging access to that social safety net that we have in the United States, and I'm most familiar with California, compounded that further. So people out of work living in situations that by no fault of their own are more challenging from a public health point of view without the money oftentimes to pay for their immediate needs. And that was five months ago. Um, So there's been five months of this in most people have barely two weeks worth of savings um, in these situations, particularly in high rent communities, high cost areas. So how do we make sure that people do not get thrown out of their homes because they can't pay the rent? It was not their fault that they lost their jobs. Um, It was not their fault that their shifts got cut. It was probably not their fault that their kids' schools closed and they had to make the choice between you know, being a negligent parent or not taking those shifts at work and being present for their children and for their families, maybe taking care of elders, maybe, you know, all of these different responsibilities people have. We are ready to see a massive cliff of evictions. And the data is really unclear on how bad it's going to be and how and when exactly it's going to hit, but it will come. And we have the choice in California and in the United States broadly to basically listen to that moral and ethical argument for, you know, keeping people housed and safe and as healthy as possible when all of the gravity is pushing us in the other direction, absent intervention. If the moral and ethical argument does not resonate with you, I hope the public health argument does, right? Because we know that the risks of people who are living in further overcrowded insecure housing situations, bopping between people's couches, living in a tent on the sidewalk, living in a shelter while they're in between homes, is a far higher public health risk to those people, again, for no fault of their own. And that broadly threatens the health of our entire communities, right? That, um, And then if the public health argument doesn't resonate with you, I hope that the good government and fiscal responsibility argument resonates with you. And this is something that I've been saying a lot to my colleagues in the legislature is California, even before COVID, 
had extraordinary challenges financially and operationally caring for and giving adequate services to our unhoused population. Homeless numbers were rising. In some places, we could keep them steady. In some places, we could not. We didn't have enough shelter beds. We didn't have enough services. And everyone was flailing. And this was before COVID. And we could see a wave of millions of more households and families being pushed onto the streets and into homelessness. And so there's a moral and ethical argument for keeping people secure. There's a public health argument for keeping people secure. And further, there's a do the preventative work up front and make sure people that doesn't happen to people. All that being said, the legislature and the governor has been working very, very hard these last few months um, in preparation for both federal unemployment benefits to be you know, cut and the supplement to not be renewed, as well as we don't know when the state of emergency is going to be lifted. There have been kind of a patchwork of different eviction moratoriums throughout the state of California to ensure that in the moment, people will not um, get thrown onto the street or lose their home or have to move. However, what happens when you haven't paid your rent or you've only paid part of your rent for a fraction of the months prior? Does that mean the second the state of emergency is over, you owe $9,000 that you don't have? That's, that's an open question to a lot of people. And so there was work done at the state legislature, a deal between the two houses, the Senate, the Assembly, and then the governor. It was first a bill authored by Assemblymember David Chu, and then it became a broader housing bill to essentially both convert your back rent that you owe to your landlord, which is in current law evictable debt, into a civil debt, essentially. So it, it's much more like a you know, credit card bill or when you don't pay your health insurance or your uh, hospital bill and it becomes like collection sense, but it's not something that you can be evicted over. And so there's just debt that accrues. That has the um, effect of keeping people in their homes, so it doesn't have the effect of helping them pay for that debt. The, the ultimate deal that got cut is, it's complicated and I won't go on too long about it, but basically um, we have about six months where folks of certain income levels are only responsible for paying a small, much smaller fraction of their rent. And then that expires in February of 2021. And so there's about six months to see how the world evolves, how COVID evolves, what happens with the federal government and what happens with the governor and with the legislature going into 2021 to see what kind of follow-up is is necessary. And that passed yesterday. <laughs> I feel really hopeful that, you know, this crisis really could reshape the way that people feel about housing, you know, not just in this state, but in this country. You know, where we're thinking about what individual people need and the kinds of housing costs that they're facing. And, you know, I just, I really feel hopeful that we could start thinking more about housing as a right and that everybody, everybody needs housing fundamentally to live and that the consequences to this state are so, so severe, you know, when we don't make sure that everybody has access to housing that they need. Uh, so I, I feel really hopeful that, you know, we could turn this this year into something positive and start addressing the upstream causes of the housing crisis and start addressing renter, uh, you know, the instability and in being a renter here in California. So I think it starts, you know, we need to look beyond just the, the individual people now being evicted. We need to look at, you know, why are housing costs already so high? Like, why were we already having this homelessness crisis? You know, we have these these larger long-term structural problems about housing here 
um, that I think, you know, we need to take a hard look at and start getting under control if we're going to hope to get to a place where where people, where we do treat housing like a human right here. A lot of folks who work deep in the weeds of housing affordability, housing security, et cetera, we're often clamoring to folks in other fields, trying to make this case that housing is the backbone for public health. Housing is the backbone for education. Housing is the backbone for broad, like social and community health. Housing is the backbone for so many different things. And that is a much more obvious case right now. Um, I don't think it's any more true than it has been in the past before COVID, but people who have been able to ignore that or focus on other things are now really, really seeing that chain and how these things are all really interconnected and how fundamental housing is when everyone is locked in their homes and some people are very secure in that situation and many people are not. I want to dig in more on on the idea of housing as a human right because it's 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 especially interesting to hear you say that because uh, sometimes that idea is is treated as uh, in tension with or competing with the idea that we need to build more and and uh, expand housing supply, and I think both of you are, are are people who believe that those don't have to be in tension, and so I'm I'm curious um, how you bring them together and how you persuade people who might hear hey, we need more housing supply and and not think that that's addressing the uh, the priority of making housing a human right and ensuring access to housing for everyone. Well, I certainly do not think that they're in tension with each other. I think that, you know, we have to produce enough housing if we're going to make housing a human right. And we just do not do that. We do not produce enough housing at all of the income levels that are needed to meet people's needs. But I, I think that there is maybe some distrust around the whole idea of housing production because our housing planning history and our housing development history does have so much racism and exclusion and harm in it. You know, so I, you know, we have decades of urban planning history in this country, you know, where highways were intentionally located to displace communities, like low-income communities of color and renters. And that was actually a goal that they had in placing those highways. It was not just to, not just to create corridors for car to travel on, but actually to harm people and to, you know, move their communities somewhere else. And so I, so I think that's, that's something that we have to struggle with a lot in this state and in this country. And I, so I think a lot of people and renters are rightfully really distrustful of large planning processes and goals like producing housing because, you know, we haven't, we have a history that, that is so harmful. And I think that's, that's a challenge for the state and our leaders and definitely for advocates as well to make sure that, you know, as we're making big goals for the state around meeting housing needs that, you know, we have to empower the voices of people that that have been, you know, marginalized in history and undo a lot of what's occurred in history and just try to constantly try to be better and try to center equity as much as we can in that housing planning and in all urban planning, really. Yeah. And one thing that I, I find it really interesting that like we often like, <laughs> isn't it astounding that 
at a high level, it's often perceived that having an abundant levels of something is in tension with universal access to that thing, right? So we talk about how it's, it's a human right to have access to water and then simultaneously ask if having water abundantly available is in tension with that idea. Like it, I would argue, of course it's not. However, I will, to back up what Leonora said, I think that a lot of the tension that exists is really context dependent as to where those two movements came from and what is sort of the subtext and the other um, informing influences on them. So for example, I do think that there is a lot of tension in housing advocacy and in housing policy and in housing justice around what is the role of the private market versus public infrastructure when it comes to housing, right? We don't build and maintain housing the way that we do freeways in the United States. And I think that there's a lot of tension there on people have a lot of arguments. People very, very smart on both sides have a lot of arguments about what is the role of capitalism in housing? What is the role of treating housing as infrastructure? What is the role of means testing? What is the role of you know, housing as a real estate industry versus housing as a human right and something that everyone should have broad and accessible and fair and dignified access to. That is where I think the tension really lives, not is abundant levels of something that is a human right in tension with one another, but those two those two taglines very much represent things that are often bickering both on the margins and often at the bigger bigger questions. So we've talked a lot about about the last few decades in the last century. I, I wanted to ask a bit about the next uh, decade or two. One thing that is also happening as we have this conversation is, is historic wildfires in California as, as just the latest reminder of how much climate change is going to affect the state. And one thing I think that gets lost in some of these discussions is just how profound increased density could be as a, a environmental tool. Um, so I was curious if, if uh, one of you wanted to walk through sort of the environmental and the climate case for for prioritizing more housing. Yes. Yeah, so increased density helps reduce carbon emissions on many different levels. So to explain with this story, again, from Santa Monica, a friend of mine used to live here, but he was forced to leave because he just couldn't keep up with the cost of rent here. You know, the cost of rent keeps going up because we have this problem of housing scarcity. So he moved out to a, a far out desert suburb where the homes are cheaper. And the fact is, is that that suburb destroyed the natural habitat there to make room for people that couldn't uh, that couldn't afford to live in the urban areas. So already we have that level of environmental harm that happened. And then because my friend now lives out in that suburb, he has to drive for two hours to commute to his job in Santa Monica each way. So that's four hours a day in traffic releasing greenhouse gas emissions. And the home that he lives out in out in the desert suburb is a single family home, which is much less energy efficient. Uh, and, uh, you know, urban areas, they actually have the lowest annual energy use per household. So uh, on top of all of that, I, uh, you know, there's the inefficiency in energy and the inefficient use of resources. And it's really not his fault. You know, if he had the choice, he'd rather live, you know, near his job, near the places he wants to go. But, you know, he was really forced into that situation because of high housing costs. But pro-housing advocates in California recently have actually done a lot to 
reduce sprawl and emissions long-term, which I'm very excited about. Well, so it starts with uh, Annie and Scott Wiener that authored SB 828, which strengthened our regional housing needs assessment process, which we often call RENA. Uh, That's a planning process regional bodies do to decide how much and where housing should go. And Abundant Housing LA has been really focused on this in the last few years. So previously, you know, when I started as a volunteer, we were fighting for housing projects here and there, you know, some upzoning, maybe the biggest wins we would get would be a thousand units, you know, but we have, we have a housing deficit in the hundreds of thousands. So I, uh, I realized that, you know, we just weren't going to get there. And a lot of us started looking at this regional housing needs assessment process, RENA, as being an opportunity to get some really big housing numbers uh, long term. And a lot of people were not paying attention to this process. But uh, I think like really key advocates, uh, you know, other pro-housing advocates and environmental advocates like Climate Resolve and Inner City Law Center and People for Housing Orange County started making that process more accountable at the regional level. So we advocated for a high total number of homes concentrated in high cost coastal areas. So the, the total number that is now planned for Southern California is nearly 1.4 million units. And originally the regional body wanted to push most of those homes out to the desert. So Coachella Valley, which is way out in the desert, it was going to get 14,000 homes. But Beverly Hills was only going to get 1,300. So you can kind of see how destructive that was going to be. But we got them to change it at the last minute last year, and they reversed to what, what is now called the coastal plan, where more, more of those homes are going to be concentrated near jobs and transit and high-cost areas in Southern California. And that is going to get us a huge way in getting back on track for climate goals in the state, because the original plan was, was not going to get us to our state climate goals, but now uh, moving people closer to jobs and transit that's going to have a huge reduction on greenhouse gas emissions and make our region more affordable and sustainable. Yeah. And another thing I, I kind of want to build on with the just the broader wildfire question um, is that I see this actually as in two pretty distinct parts and distinct problems, both under the umbrella of land use, but separate from each other. The first one is this, you know, RENA, this regional housing planning, this master plan type process, which I see as stopping the bleeding, right? So much of the ethos and the mythology of California is embedded in this 20th century suburban abundance mindset. And we've done a lot of damage in the last 60, 70, 80 years in this state on that front. And so the incredible work that Leonora and her coalition did down in LA during this regional planning process was essentially saying, Let's stop that ship. Like, let's not keep going in that direction. The status quo is not okay. We've already done so much that we can't undo. We need to take a different tack, right? Forever, we've been building further and further and further out into the deserts, out into the green fields, out into farmland, and we need to stop. However, that is on the 10, 20, 50-year horizon of California's wildfire fate, right? That is are you going to build further out into this wildland urban interface or not? There's another part of this that's tied to land use, but much more to the affordability question, which is that we have 
I hate to be melodramatic, but we have climate refugees in our own state. We have people like Leonora's friend who are living out in Lancaster or living out, you know, up in Napa County where we're having fires raging and all of these different parts of the state, Santa Cruz, where we're having fires raging. People who are commuting hours into cities with very low wildfire risk and exclusively, or in most cases exclusively, for the reason that they cannot afford to live in those safe and expensive places. And so there's this question about the master planning, but there's also this question about how are we going to make the places that are lowest risk and lowest exposure and safest more accessible to more people? Because right now they're excluded primarily because of housing costs. And I think that that is equally as challenging a problem as this broad 50-year master planning fiasco, but it can happen on a shorter timeline. Um, we can make those cities more inclusive, larger, denser, and concentrate housing opportunities for people in the lowest risk and safest places. And that takes a different type of land use policy that's focused on urbanized, metropolitan, highly developed areas, as opposed to the inverse, which is stopping further development in the highest risk areas. And so I think that you can't have one without the other. And when we talk about, you know, when we talk about wildfires abstractly, it's very easy to focus on that master planning part. But I mean, I'm sure Leonora, you have dozens of friends. I have dozens of friends and family who are homeless right now because their home was evacuated. A firefighter knocked on their door and said, you have seven minutes to leave, grab your duffel bag and your old love letters, meet us out front. And we need to make sure that we don't forget about those folks when we're having these abstract conversations about land use and zoning, because there is a much more urgent and very human and equally important question that ultimately comes down to affordability and where we have access to housing concentrated. Absolutely. This is somewhat more abstract and feels feels less dire than, than where we left with that question. But I, I tried um, to give the don't want to be melodramatic uh, caveat. No, it's it's a it's a dramatic situation in your defense. Um, yeah. But uh, one one thing that did come into effect this year is the the requirement um, that that certain new homes have uh, solar panels on them, and this is something that I've I think a lot of people outside. California have noticed as as sort of a, a an innovation and in, in how you guys are doing housing. I was curious if if uh, one or both of you could talk a little about what that means for for these millions of new units that that Southern California and Northern California are going to need going forward, and and where that uh, how that fits into the state's overall climate strategy. A few years ago, it was actually my boss, Scott Wiener, that wrote the first, um, it was legislation that then turned into a building code update around essentially a solar mandate on new construction. And there were a lot of contours to it, but ultimately it's, you know, solar ready types of development need to have solar panels, rooftop solar. And there are a lot of ways that this overlaps with the broader housing conversation. I actually had a really great chat with one of my former colleagues, uh, Miles, last night, who's our energy whiz on our team, who had staffed that uh, bill and that policy for several years. And we got to talking about how these two overlapped. And it is a bit of a Venn diagram and that you have these broader questions around just climate change at this macro level about do we have clean energy sources? Is it renewable? Are we getting our energy from coal or from natural gas or from wind and solar? 
then you have this separate issue, which overlaps or starts to overlap with housing, which is how do you distribute that energy once you have it, right? So in California, often a lot of our energy fights really center on the investor-owned utilities, which is sort of like the big guys that you get your utility bill from. And in California, they actually do a pretty incredible job, um, you know, ahead of schedule and above quota in terms of having the lion's share of that be from renewable sources in terms of the broader state energy portfolio. So we have solar farms all over the state. Most of the source of your energy in California is renewable, actually. But then there's the question of how does that energy get from the solar farm to the, you know, USB port or the plug on your wall? And if the tension is between getting solar energy, which is clean from the investor-owned utility to your home, or getting the solar energy from your roof down you know, 15 feet into your kitchen, that infrastructure could not be more different from each other, right? How this overlaps with housing development is that rooftop solar is, is more expensive. It adds costs to construction in a way that um, just wiring you know, in from the power line does not. However, you're also taking away all of that broader cost to the system that it takes the, those utilities to connect a power line to your house. And when you think of that in one distinct instance, it seems very, very small. But when you look at the broad numbers about how these utility companies really make money, it's actually from building and repairing power lines. It's not really from the energy itself. And so rooftop solar cuts out all of that infrastructure. And some people think that's a great thing. And some people think that's a bad thing. And there are smart people on both sides. And I'm not here to like give a lecture on that. But a lot of the conversation is around how worthwhile is it to overlap these two topic areas and say, we're going to have that 15-foot wire down from your you know, roof into your kitchen versus wired in 200 miles from the desert. And is that worth the marginal added cost to new construction on a home versus the added cost to a utility, as well as all of the liability that comes to that with the utility. Going back to wildfires, wildfires in California have spread through our electricity infrastructure, through our power lines um, that have been questionably maintained over many years, that are an outdated infrastructure. We basically are given the choice between having public safety power shutoffs, which is that the utility preemptively decides to turn off your power for hours or days at a time to stop wildfires from spreading, or keeps it on and rolls the dice and gambles with that wildfire spreading, but you have power if it doesn't. All's to say, where Miles and I landed in this very interesting conversation we had is, ultimately, I think the best way to think about it is, if land use is of critical importance to like the climate future of California, and if energy is also of critical importance to the climate future of California, which one should be leading and which one should be following in the places where they overlap? And we had this interesting kind of colorful debate about it and kind of landed on the clean energy industry and the solar industry and all of the infrastructure and technological changes are happening so, so, so fast. That's a much more adaptable sector and field than land use, right? So going back to what we were talking about before, land use, often these debates happen on a 10, 20, 50 year timeline. It's very abstract. It's very high level. It's like turning around and what do we call them? Air air carrier, air, air force carrier. 
a giant boat with like a piece of dental floss. And we're, you're just we're, like, we're land use people, not sea use people. <laughs> it's just turning around a massive, massive, massive ship with all of these little, little things. And Miles and I landed at land use is the stodgier, harder, more complicated, more slow field. And so do the right thing for land use. And the, in the energy industry, will kind of adapt to whatever that right thing is. If you were to line up a bunch of single family homes in the suburbs of Greenfields, but that are net zero, right? So net zero energy consumption, they have all their rooftop solar, they're very efficient. Or an apartment building in San Francisco that's wired to the grid and maybe has a little bit of rooftop solar, but on a square footage coverage per household basis, it's a much lower density of solar power. Both of those are good, but ultimately the latter is better for land use and energy will adapt to that. Um, and so I don't think it's it's necessarily that um, solar panels are good or bad or the solar mandate is good or bad, but doing what's the right thing for land use and letting the industry adapt to that is probably the right, right strategy to go with for that reason. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask both of you is... Uh... I imagine many of our listeners live in California, but most probably don't. Um, I live in D.C. Uh, I have a lot of friends in in Boston, New York, Seattle. What should the rest of us learn from California's experience trying to get more housing? Um, what's what's worked? Uh, what hasn't worked? And what should we be be emulating and not emulating? So I think the rest of the country needs to start shifting their policies to favor density and decrease the footprint of their urban areas and make sustainable communities, protect the environment. But I think it's pretty clear what those policies should be. But I think the much harder thing is how to make those a political reality and how to build a culture that supports density. And I think those are the really challenging things. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about what what should other parts of the country do uh, about this? But I, I think the biggest lesson that maybe I could give is that we can't wait to start this process of cultural and political change. You know, we have to start now to change our housing policies and we can't wait until, you know, we have a terrible homelessness crisis like we already have in California. You can't wait until, you know, climate change is so bad that many neighborhoods have massive wildfires. You know, that's that's what other places in the U.S. need to look at California and say, you know, we don't want to wait until it's that bad to start making this change. The, already, we've lost so many people due to displacement. Um, and I think if we had started shifting our policies earlier, we could have headed off a lot of that. You know, I... A lot of pro-housing advocates here, when we talk to city planners and electeds, we often hear, well, we definitely believe in density, of course. Like, we want these communities to be denser, but we just want to do it in an incremental way so that that change is easier and feels better for the people. And, you know, that sounds great. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense. But the problem is we waited too late to start that incremental process. You know, it it's too late for that now. You know, too many people are homeless and too many people are dying because they don't have a home. So I, we really should have started that incremental process 10 years ago or more. And, you know, if maybe we, it, you know, maybe if, if we had started then, we, a lot of things would have been much better now. 
And so I think that's like, that's the biggest takeaway that other places should get from California is that we started too late just to do a little bit of incremental stuff. And like these, these big cultural changes and political changes take a lot of time, but you know, individual people can do a lot to support housing and inclusive neighborhoods where they live. You know, it's, I think it's just really easy to do that um, in everybody's own community, you know, to spread the word on housing, to maybe make a public comment at a neighborhood council or city council meeting. Uh, and if you go to our website, abundanthousingla.org slash quiz, we have a quiz about how, what kind of advocate you are in terms of housing or what you could be if you're interested in becoming one. So I think like there's a lot of really simple ways that, um, you know, organizations like mine hopefully can, can help people to get there so that, you know, together we can do this really big shifting of the aircraft carrier that (laughs) Annie's talking about. Just to mix our metaphors. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Coming from California, which is, a unique state, as are the other 49 states. You know, like none of us are the same. There are some common threads, I think, in housing in the United States broadly, just given shared history from a federal level. So I think that as leaders and policymakers and advocates and folks in the press are, you know, watching what's happening in California and taking that back home, wherever that may be some of the shared themes um, to really apply and think critically about are the role of the automobile in the development of the United States broadly and how we retrofit away from that. I think further being very honest and critical about the incredible prosperity that came to so many Americans through homeownership, particularly in terms of wealth and security, and also at the same time, how unequally that was and has been distributed. And where do we go with that, right? Does that, is the answer that we have homeownership broadly and equally and fully and universally accessible to everyone? And where does that end? Do we step away further from homeownership and have this, a revived, you know, renters movement and have much more renters sort of like power and normalization and security within renters Um, and those questions, I think that are so dictated by 20th century federal policy in the United States are things that are going to be important no matter where you are, though the answers might come out differently depending on your local context. The other thing that I wanted to add, and this is much more colored just by my experience working and operating within the state legislature, working on a lot of national profile and, um, high stakes, consequential California housing bills, the ones where we have been successful, either in actually passing them or really turning the broad rhetoric and conversation on its head, I would advise folks to take lessons about the actual sequencing and political implications of how you get policies passed. Um, A lot of one of the things that my boss, Scott Wiener, says that I always share with people because I think it's very brilliant is... He came from local government and then went to the state legislature. And almost all cities in the United States, land use is a local government jurisdiction, right? It's usually not a state level thing with some exceptions in some areas. And so this fight about how do we turn the ship around 
the political incentives for someone at the local level to do something dramatic and politically unpopular at the local level is a tall order to ask, right? You could be a real true believer in the right thing to do, and it would be the wrong thing to do politically. It would be the wrong thing to do, you know, in terms of your constituents will be angry at you and the news will be all over it. And where do you move forward with that? And my boss, whenever he's talking to local elected officials on housing or on land use, he'll often close the door in the meeting and say, look, like, make me the bad guy. I'm at the state level. I'm two steps removed from the punch. I've been in your seat before, and I know how impossible it is to do the right thing, even when you want to. And sometimes that's sort of your fault, and sometimes it's not, and we're not here to debate that. But like, the takeaway lesson, I think, is that when you're crafting and architecting and designing policies and the um, conversations we have around them, take a really close look at that incentive loop and that feedback loop and where exactly the power of decision-making lies and where the consequences of that decision-making live. Because if your entire strategy is contingent on city council members doing something that will cost them 30% of the vote in their next election. I don't know how sound a strategy that is, and yet it doesn't mean it's not worth solving that problem. So that's, that's I guess, where I would want to finish it. And that's one of the biggest takeaway lessons I've had going from City Hall in San Francisco and doing a lot of this work at the local level and then trying to transition and drag it up to the state is um, how you effectively make that transition, not just from on paper, how do the policies work, but also how do you make the politics work in a way where it's sustainable and you don't have a massive backlash that then sets you, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Wonderful. Thank you guys both so much for doing this. This was was beyond my expectations and and I think turned out really great. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. I appreciate you all uh, including us. Thanks so much. 